Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Um, this morning, welcome. Really glad that you are here. We are finishing up our value series and Um, Our values are a way of thinking and dreaming about the kind of church that we want to be. And so what we said is that these are things that we actually cultivate for our neighbors, for ourselves, and for our cities because values determine and shape culture. And these are the kind of people we want to be. If you missed a week, you can go back and listen. We spent uh, two weeks per value. Um, But let me run through them really quick before I read our our scripture for uh, the day. The first one was hospitality. So we said we wanted to be a community that's radically welcoming Um, where we're creating um, free space to create friends instead of enemies. Uh, Next was identity formation, to be a community that's actively trying to look, act, and be like Jesus and formed into the likeness of Jesus. Next was justice and mercy. We spent two weeks here talking about how we want to be a community that's aware of the injustices around us and then actively looking to do our part in meeting those needs. Uh, Covenant community, we spent a little time with a panel a couple weeks ago, being a community of life-giving relationships, where we honed honed in on this word covenant, where we're talking about our commitment to a body, to a group of people. Uh, Last week and today, we're going to finish talking about uh, generosity, to be a community that's loving others well with our resources, our time, and our money. I wonder if those are our kids. I hope they're not. Uh, We'll find out. No problem, it happens. Um, But anyway, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about generosity through this lens. Um, What does it mean to have an abundant mindset? All right, so let's let's pause. Um, I want to read our scripture for today. It's going to come from uh, Mark chapter 12, and uh, then I'll pray. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So Lord, I... um, I just ask that you would just be in this place um, where as we look at a passage like this or we talk about a topic in the church like generosity, um, sometimes our walls can come up, sometimes there's fear in our own hearts and our own minds, but I pray that uh, none of those things would actually exist today, but what would come front and center is who you are, your character, and how we can respond to you as a people. Lord, I just pray Um, right now, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So eight or nine years ago, um, my wife Katie and I, we go up to the Hudson Valley, about 30 miles north of here, and we go to tour the Rockefeller Estate. Has anybody been there? Um, Yeah, it's called Kaikit. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to go there? Um, John D. Rockefeller built this house, um, and Kaikit in Dutch means like lookout. It's, um, it's built along the Hudson. It's 3,400 acres, and um, the Rockefellers are so bougie, they were like, we don't want to look at anything. And so they purchased the Palisades in New Jersey. I don't know if that, that land, maybe New Jersey is really cheap or something like that. But they purchased a bunch of New Jersey so they didn't have to look at anything. 
And um, John D. Rockefeller, um, who made his money from oil and other ventures, um, in his day, his um, economic output equaled 1.5% of America as a, as a whole, like his own output. Uh, his net worth translated today, according to Forbes, would be $392 billion. That's double that of Elon Musk, um, who's currently the world's richest. And so we go and tour this house, and there's 40 bedrooms. Um, the, the house has this expansive art collections. It's Picasso and, and Warhol. There's this elegant piano, seating for many right in the center room. Um, the fountains are so elaborate, they, um, they mimic the ones in Rome. Uh, there is these statues where these ancient Chinese from ancient Chinese dynasties, the gardens are just absolutely immaculate. There are two swimming pools. There's an ice cream parlor in this house. I'm like, come on, like, you know how to live right. And the tour guide was telling us that John D. Rockefeller was actually a Baptist and believed in simplicity. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah ch check this out. His house was actually built in modesty and then added on to by his children. And the, the, the tour guide actually told us that John D. was actually very generous as well, bailing out uh, America in time of economic downturn. And I don't know if you know this, this is actually attributed to John D. Rockefeller. After making his billions, someone came and said, how much money is enough? Does anybody know what he said? One more dollar, right? One more dollar. And I think that brings us to this simple but profound question, is there enough? Is there enough time to get everything done? Parents in the room, you're like, that's what I feel so scarce with. Is there enough information to make the right decision? Are there enough jobs out there to find the one that fits me? Is there enough money to pay the bills this month? Or is there enough money in the next couple months because I know my rent is going up, right? Is there enough in the savings account to feel safe? Is there enough in the retirement account to last? Is there enough income this month to actually feel free with it, to give it away? And the truth is, is these are actually deeply personal questions that tug at the deepest parts of who we are. And I love this text today because what the, the text that we're going to look at today actually serves as a sort of barometer to how we view our money and our possessions in the realm of generosity. And so here in Mark 12, um, Jesus is doing a little people watching. This is like my favorite hobby, and so I'm with Jesus. He's perched up in the temple courts in the treasury. He's hanging out, and he's standing near the collection plate in the Jewish temple. And of course, the temple was for worship, but one of the functions of the temple was a depository for and management of vast amounts of wealth. And so Jesus is sitting there, and there's there's, um, what there would be is there's these 13 collection boxes called the trumpets. There were these um, boxes that had a um, like cone shape or a funnel coming out of them where you would put money. Um, I kept thinking this week about Coinstar. Um, I don't know if those are around anymore, but just imagine in the temple like 13 Coinstars. My dad and I would go to these Coinstar machines, and I just remember like unloading the blue jug, you know, the blue jug full of coins. And it's so aesthetically pleasing until you find out they're taking 13% from you or something like that. And so I was reading the passage this week, and I thought, how does Jesus know? Like, how does Jesus know the amount? But remember, think Coinstar. Jesus is sitting there, and the amounts can actually be heard. There would be a temple attendant there, and the attendant would, um, you'd come to the attendant, and you'd say, I have this gift for this offering, and he would say, go to this bucket, and there would be a divvying up of the money in that way, and what do you hear? People come in and give vast amounts of wealth, right? They're coming in with like four blue jugs, just shaking it in there for a while, and so Jesus is listening, but then this happens in verse 42. But a poor widow came 
and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. These two copper coins um, are, are Greek coins. They're called lepta, and they would barely make a sound when they went into the depository. And I don't know why, but when I imagine this scene, I just imagined her two coins drop and the room stops. Dink, dink. What? Why? Like, why, why, even, why even give it, right? In some ways, you look at it and you say, like, if you're a poor widow, just keep it. Like, that's probably what God wants for you. Just, just keep it, right? Or, or maybe other people were thinking, well, how, how kind is that, you know, as they shake their blue jugs? But then there's another side of it. What do you think the woman might be feeling in that moment? Is there a measure of embarrassment? Like, this is all that I had. Maybe there's a bit of shame or unworthiness. I was thinking about, what if this woman is angry? She's a widow, right? Maybe her question as she drops these coins is like, where, where's my husband? Where's the one that I was going to do life with and, and have provision with? Or maybe there's a sense of, of joy where she knew exactly what she was doing and she knew exactly what she was giving, and so there was joy in her heart to give that. And Jesus is brilliant because Jesus never wastes an opportunity to teach. He uses it as an opportunity to draw a stark comparison. Here's a woman's, uh, a poor widow's sacrificial generosity in comparison to a scarcity mindset of, two, uh, of the religious leaders of the day. The poor widow already lost so much but gives sacrificially. And then what about the religious leaders in the day? This is what it says in verse 38. This is right before our passage. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They love to be seen. They want people to respect them and they want to walk in at the opportune time so that people notice them. And then look at this. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Uh, another translation says that they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And what would happen in this time is these scribes, these legal experts, um, they would do cons. They would accept payment from widows for legal advice. And sometimes it actually got so bad that they would, um, through a legal process, cheat widows out of their role as guardians of their husband's estates. And so the scribes, when you look at them, their relationship with money is that it owns them. They're hoarding it for themselves, and they feel entitled. And I don't think that anyone really wakes up and says, well, you know what? I think it would be good if we need to get some money to, to cheat a poor widow out of her wealth. Right? I don't think anybody thinks like that, but through the process of pride, through the process of seeking status, through the process of wanting to be seen, the idol of greed slowly takes over. And yet, what's so interesting when I look at this passage is that these individuals are plagued with a scarcity mindset. Scarcity is the deep-rooted belief that no matter how much there is, it doesn't have to do with the amounts you have, it's not enough. Scarcity plagues us with that question, is there enough, is there enough, is there enough? Abundance, on the other hand, is this embedded belief and conviction that there is enough even in the middle of uncertainty. So here's a little chart I, wanna, I want us to just think on for a second. And basically what I want to do with this part of this passage is kind of pause here and I want to allow us each some time, no one's going to say anything out loud, but you can just each some time to think, what is my relationship with money and possessions? So a scarcity mindset, there will never be enough, where abundance says there is enough. 
Scarcity hoards things from others, right? That could even be like saving in, in one sense, right? Where abundance gives freely. Scarcity is going to avoid risk, right? I have to be certain and know what will happen with my resources. Abundance, on the other hand, embraces risk. In scarcity, you find a sense of entitlement. This is mine, right? I, I earn this. I deserve it. This is mine. Um, abundance has a, a spirit of gratitude. We're going to talk about that in a second. We see this in this text. And then there's this relationship with fear and trust. Scarcity has a, a bit of fear where abundance embraces trust. Don't judge yourself too hard here. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge you here this morning. Judge yourself, maybe. What's your relationship with money? What do you like with money? How do you spend the money you have? Are you a saver? Are you a, a spender? Where does your money go? I like what Jesus says. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And look at this last part. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'm sure most of us have heard that before, but, but, but like think for a second. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying something radically, um, it's brilliant. He says, money leads and your heart follows. Treasure first, then your heart, right? But we like to think of it the other way around. You might be saying, well, what are you, what are you talking about, right? If you want to know what someone loves, follow their money. It's just like a very practical and natural thing to understand. Money leads and your heart follows. And so if I want to know what you value, I could look at your bank statement, right? I'd skip, skip the rent. Like, we value that, right? We value the roof. It's a lot of money in New York. It's fine. Just, just skip the rent. Let's go to the next category, right? If we looked at each other's bank accounts, we would say, wow, I can begin to see what they value as people. I could begin to actually see their heart. And this is why money is, is actually neutral in one sense, because we actually trade or exchange money for the things that we value. And so let me just break down um, how we generally use money, and this is a way of evaluating our relationship with it. Money is primarily for some a means of status. And I think this is actually what we see in the passage with the um, teachers of religious law. They're using money as a means of power, approval, and control. I grew up in Arizona, um, in where I'm, where I'm from in, in like North Phoenix, everyone has toys, trucks, big, big lifted trucks, motorcycles, boats, like four wheelers, all these things. And when I was growing up, my, my two neighbors would always duel it out to who had nicer stuff. And it was like, you guys aren't even trying to hide this. Like it'd be nice, new lifted truck. Then it would be like, a, like that was like a four inch lift. This is like a six-inch lift over here, all right? We get like an exhaust going on this side of the street. It's like louder exhaust on this side of the street. And I just think, you guys are really trying to gain each other's approval or something as a means of status. I don't know who said it, but uh, this makes me laugh. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, right? <laughs> Isn't that how we use money? And of course, like, this, is not, this is not what we say outwardly. Right? We, don't, we don't say these things outwardly, but I'm trying to get us to think, what is it that we really do with our money that says something about who we are? There's a great article in the New York Times. Um, I think it's called For the Love of Money. It's um, from a guy who's a, a famer, famous uh, Wall Street trader who had become blind to all the money he had made, and he stated that he actually had a money sickness. Here's what he said in the New York Times article. Yeah, it is called For the Love of Money. 
In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was 3.6 million. Okay. Um, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, and no goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. It's staggering to think that in the course of, four, uh, a course of five years, I'd gone from being thrilled at my first bonus of $40,000 to being disappointed when my second year at the hedge fund, I was paid only $1.5 million. Somebody say, I want his problem, right? <laughs> and you know what's funny? Is I read that this week and I thought, I'm just good. We did, we, that's easy, right? Like, that's a different level of wealth. I, I'm like, I don't, I'm going to distance myself from that. And I love that he goes on the article to talk about this level of comparison that would consume him, envy and greed. And the truth is, is that comparison is always the thief of joy. Comparison is always the thief of joy. And we reason and, and, and we start to do these games where we say, well, you know what? I don't live that lavishly, right? It's not, it's not that bad. I was reading one commentary this, this week that actually said that for most people, they, um, they read the Bible from the social middle class, not from the poor, not from the rich. They, they actually position themselves right in the middle, right? Why do we do that? So we can take our hands off of responsibility, right? This isn't for me, right? And that's money as a means of status. For others, and I think this is more likely for many of us in this room, is that money is a means of security, right? In this instance, we're using money as a means of control. When I have money, when I have enough money, I take it and I use it as a means of keeping myself safe. I can tuck enough away and then I won't have to worry. If I have enough, I won't have to worry about medical issues that come my way. Debt, theft, whatever. I can have stability in a turbulent world. And that's why when many of us look at the story, we, we think, wow, it's actually unwise for this woman who only has these two lepta to give away the two lepta. But I think one of the questions we must ask here is, what do you trust to take care of you when your life falls apart? God or money? And then lastly, and this is just like a little addendum here to this, this last part, money is a means of freedom. I've been thinking about this from a, a personal lens. When I think about money in my own life, I, I want... I want a type of security that allows me freedom, right? I don't, I don't want to actually, um, I want to be free to make decisions. If I want to travel, I want to be able to travel. And I don't want to just, I don't want to think about it. I don't have to save up for a period of time. I want the freedom to be able to make that decision right away. And the reality is, is what I'm trying to do in, inside of that measure of freedom is I just don't want to have to rely on anyone. I got this on my own, right? I'm free to make decisions as I please. Are you beginning to see Money reveals your heart. Here's what um, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. This is the New Living Translation. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Next one. There we go. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Some of you are thinking, that's good wisdom. 
maybe a little pessimistic, right? Right? Maybe not realistic to um, where I am at, at, in my life or, or the, the life that I want to lead. But my question here is, do you have a scarcity mindset? Do you think that you would be happier if you had a little bit just a little bit more time or money, right? Do you struggle inside of that to compare what you have with other people? And then to transition, what does Jesus teach us in the passage? Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And so Jesus looks at the gifts, even though in comparison, the the widow's gift is numerically less, he declares that her gift means more. Why? Because they, the rich, gave out of their surplus, but she gave from her need. One scholar I was reading on the passage said, the gift that counts is the gift that costs. The gift that counts is the gift that costs. And I know you you and I look at this story, and I I thought this too when I was reading the story this week, it's just not wise. She, she, shouldn't, she shouldn't do that. It, yes, it's sacrificial, but it's not wise. But that's because we actually have something to learn from her. She has this abundant mindset at work. She's giving from this, um, they're, they're giving from this abundance and this surplus, but she doesn't give out of her excess, but she actually gives out of her poverty and her lack. And what Jesus is showing us through this story is that our motivations in our generosity matter, Right? She gives everything. What does it mean? She, she, she's saying, I don't know where my, my next meal is going to come from, but I trust it will be given to me. She's not worried about tomorrow. She's saying, I'm willing to give this away because I actually believe there's a provision for me outside of this. And what we're actually witnessing is her total love for God above everything that she has. I'll never forget, I was, I was preaching, it's probably 10 years ago at this point, and I was talking about I just mentioned in the, in the sermon that um, someone in our church needed a car, and I just kind of like left that there. And this woman came up to me after church, and she tucked money into my pocket, and she said, I, I want you to give this to that family. And I knew this woman, and I, I knew that whatever she put in my pocket in that moment was too much. It was too much for her. And I almost thought, you know what, like, I'll, like I can cover, I'll, I want to give this back to her in that moment. And she said, give this to that family. I know that it's going to make a difference for them. Get home, it's $50. To you and I, it's like, you know, maybe that's a lot for you this morning. In that moment, I was like, that woman just gave everything because she saw a need. And I think that woman at, at, at my church there, she, she was wanting to actually become like Jesus. Because when, how do we become like Jesus? We, we actually do what he did, which is give, Right? When we're softened to the needs around us, we, it, our, we're naturally going to want to give, right? We, when, when, when we're softened to the needs around us and when we want more relationship, we're actually going to give, right? When we want to use our money to meet the needs of, of other people, when we want to use our money to, to acts of justice and, and to mercy, if, we're actually, if our heart is saying, you know what, I actually just love that. Money's going to flow very naturally to it, right? Which is what we were building on in the beginning. How do you use money? What, what are you doing with your money? You're giving it to the things that you love. It just flows naturally out, which is why in her, her motivation for giving in this is that her motivation for giving is love. The love of God has actually given her a deep sense of gratitude. And what does gratitude do? Gratitude always leads to generosity. 
When you have a deep gratitude in your heart for a person in your life or a, a cause or something, you'd say, I want to give to that. I want to be a part of it. And so in this temple, the temple is the perfect place for this. Giving is an act of worship. To give back to um, God in generosity is to, to honor him. It, it's, it's a way of saying, God, I believe there's a, a, um, a way that you've provided for me, that you've given to me. And you know what we do in generosity, particularly in church, is we, we, we would just say, I know it's actually all from you. I know this is all a gift from you, and so I want to give, give some back to you and to others around me. And so if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, I'm not here to guilt or, or, or shame you. I'm actually not even trying to force this on you. I'm actually just trying to extract it out of you. Because if you actually believe in the gospel, it's already in you. This is already at work in, in your heart and in your mind because you would say, yep, this is the way that I get to respond. I understand who God is. That's, that's why we say that giving liturgy every week. God, you are an abundant giver. Everything I have is from you. This isn't like a prosperity gospel. This is an acknowledgement that everything that we have and everything that we are, is, it wasn't, we're, we're not entitled to it. We didn't earn it, but actually we're stewards of it. And that's like a whole other sermon, which I, I don't want to get into today. But here's how Jesus said it. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And maybe a simple question would be, do you believe that in your heart? Like, do you actually believe that? Think about Christmas. Like, when I was a kid, Christmas was like the ultimate day. This is the most amazing thing ever. I can't wait to open gifts. And then I became a parent, and I'm like, I cannot wait to see these kids smile as they open these gifts. And I actually believe that now. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So I want to get to some practical things. But before I do that, what's going on in your heart? Like, as I'm talking right now, what's going on in your heart? Is something inside of you like, oh, why did I come today? Like, you know, this is, these are the words. I always show up on these weeks, right? Or is something in you like, I, actually, I, there's something to this. I don't know if that guy has it all right, but there's something to it. I'm, I'll take that today, right? You, you might hear me talking about money, possessions, generosity, treasures, all these things. I, I'm not really talking about that. I'm actually talking about your heart, where your heart is, what's going on in there. And um, I would say that God is primarily interested in your heart, that, that if your heart is changed and if it's moved and it's, it's becoming more and more like Jesus and he's bending you towards kindness, even though maybe you come kicking and screaming, um, maybe that's a part of how God wants to actually shape and mold you. What are your motives in that? So let me give us two practical things here on giving generously. And I'll get um, practical about giving here too. The first is this, start where you are. I love the example of the widow because she starts giving though she has little. Start where you are. There's a temptation to say, I'm going to start giving when I'm rich. I'm gonna start giving when I have enough, right? When the bank accounts, when I'm Sam Polk and I'm working on Wall Street, I am gonna be giving but rather start where you are. And I would invite you to start with an evaluation. It's impossible to grow in how we view and use money if we don't know how we use money, right? And so here's what you can do. Look at your bank account, right? I, I know for some of you, like, this is the last thing I wanna do, right? Look at your bank account, scroll through it. Where does your money go? And then you can ask yourself this simple question. Does how I spent this money align with my values, right? Does how I spent this align with my values? And if you don't have a budget, um, you know, like this is a worthy conversation, but look through your statements. See your rent, right? I, I value a roof over 
my head. Food, restaurants, eating out. I, I value entertainment, friendship, community, subscriptions. Like we all need to go through and see what subscriptions we don't actually know that we have. So this is that reminder too. So if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Um, these are a way of saying, does how I spend my money actually align with my values? And then you remember this passage, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, right? You're finding out where your heart resides, but then think of this the other way. How can you put your heart, or how can you put your money where you want your heart to be? You put your money there first, right? Give to where you desire to love. And this is the second part. First was start where you are. Second is this, give to what you love. The woman is giving as an act of worship, as a response, right? And I want our church, I want our church to be the most generous place. And you know what? I should I pause time out right here. Thank you, because this church is so generous. There are so many wonderfully generous people in this church, and I want to keep cultivating that spirit of generosity where we would say, I'm free with my time, I'm free with my money. And so some of you are asking, well, like, what does that look like? What's like the New Testament standard for giving? Here's the New Testament standard for giving, generosity, generosity. And I love that this passage, it really isn't about the uh, percentages, right? Like we sit in these and we'd say, well, is he like talking about tithing, like this 10%? Is it like 2%? Is it like gross? Is it net? Like how do I know like how, how to give in these ways? The will for God in your life is not going to be found on a budget. The will for God in your life is not going to be found on a spreadsheet, but rather Give to the things that you love. If God is stirring you, even right now, you're thinking about a friend. Like how many people in this world don't know that God loves them because the church hasn't been generous to them? The church hasn't, hasn't come alongside and said, like, I, I, I want to be a part of meeting the need that you have. Give to what you love. And if that brings you joy and cheer, keep doing that, right? It might be painful at first a little bit, right? That, that's fair. Well, here, here and, and let me share this too. Here's what Katie and I do. This is simply a description of what we do. This isn't to say like, this is the right way, but here's what we uh, did. When we got married, we decided a long time ago that we would give 10% of our income to our church. Um, Katie actually just went back to work, so this is gonna spur on a little conversation about um, increasing our giving because she did that. And we set up a recurring gift that 10% of what we um, make goes to the church the first of the month. That's the decision that we made a long time ago. And then what we do is we have a little budget. Um, it's not a lot right now. It's about 100 bucks a month that in our budget, there's a $100 gifts budget. And Katie can use it. I can use it. It can be, um, you know, for a birthday party where we want to give something to, a baby shower, something like that. Or if somebody asks us for something and we feel compelled to meet the need, we just say, hey, I'm going to spend some of that money. Great. Awesome. And I love for us as a couple to see that increase over and above our 10% over time. And here would just be my invitation to you today. Whatever maybe you're, you're, you're thinking is pray. Like pray and say, God, put something in front of me this week so that I can give to it. And do it. Pray. And you know what? I would just say give it, give it some time, like six months. If, if, you, if, you, if you're thinking, what should I give? How should I give? When, when should I do it? Try, right? I've, I've never met someone who, who wanted a refund from, you know, a, a gift of generosity. It might hurt a little at first, but over time, I think what we'd actually say is this is cultivating in me a heart of generosity. I think that reunion is a great place to give money to. If you don't trust reunion, 
give away your money to someone that you do trust or a cause that you do believe in because what that will do in your own life and in your own heart, it'll change you. I believe that. I believe that verse so thoroughly. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the last thing. God is so generous. It's all his anyway. We're, we're, we're stewarding this. He's laughing at us. I'll never forget, I was in a class on um, missions, and my professor, um, somebody in my prof- uh, class, we had been in class for about two, two months or so, and um, we were talking about, you know, how, how we um, serve and engage the world globally, and somebody stood up and said, well, how, 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 how are we going to afford this? How, how are we actually going to be able to do this? And our professor, he's so cheesy and just has this, like, low, like, uh, no, it's like high pitch, but like low tone. He was just like, our God owns a, a cattle on a thousand hills, guys. And it was like amazing the way that he said it. But this is our God. Like, it's all his. We're just, we're just fumbling around with God's money. And God gives us everything. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him all up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He gave you everything. We can give a little back to God. Let's pray.